chapter 8, verses 31, through to chapter 9, verse 29. The way the gospel writers write, they have defined sections that uh, are usually slightly longer than the divisions uh, the editors have added into our Bibles. And 831 to 929 is a defined section in Mark's gospel, and we're going to read it and study it as such. So let me read for us from 831. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man himself must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, so no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three shelters or tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. When they came to the disciples, the other disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and gnashes, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. 
And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Well, let's ask God for his help as we study his word. Our Father, we pray that you would speak to us all from your living word, that we would listen and obey, be encouraged by it and steadied in it, for we ask In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as Callum prayed yesterday, we launched the Gospel Project, which will be a major feature of our church life next year. The aim of the Gospel Project is that everybody in the church will be equipped to be confident in one gospel, in Mark's gospel, such that we can allow God's Word to do God's work in all sorts of different contexts. Mark, in your hands, is a great manual for evangelism. It also has a great deal to teach Christians about being followers or disciples of the Lord Jesus. And this section, and we read the first chunk of it from chapter 831 right through to chapter 1052, The focus is on what it means to be a follower, to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And what Mark does is he weaves, like a collage, a whole lot of different episodes together that describe servant-hearted discipleship. Now, servant-hearted discipleship is not a brand or a particular kind of discipleship as if there were other brands or other kinds. Servant-heartedness is the heart or the hallmark or the authenticating description of what it means to be a Christian disciple. There are no other forms of Christian discipleship other than servant-heartedness. Now, let me just waggle on the tea a little bit longer and ask what is an important question. Why is it that it needs to be like this? Why is it that Christian discipleship is about serving? Why is it about suffering or the willingness to do it? Why does it have to be like that? It's a little crazy. Well, it has to be like that because servant-heartedness or a willingness to suffer is how the kingdom of God advances. It cannot advance. Gospel progress 
cannot really happen, and by that I mean genuine, real, long-lasting gospel progress, it cannot happen other than through servant-heartedness and suffering. So Jesus says, so the Bible says. Now, I guess another question that raises is if that is true and Jesus says it is true and the Bible says it is true and I guess our experience says it is true, if that is true, why is it that the kingdom of God or genuine Christian progress can only happen through servant-heartedness or the experience of suffering? Well, there are many answers to that question. Let me suggest some just as pointers. Well, I guess one, because the kingdom of God is not like this world. If you go to an airport bookshop, airport bookshops always have books about the ten things you can do to advance in the world. I don't quite know why they're in airport bookshops, but there they are. And, uh, you know, the kind of stuff. But they're not the ways the kingdom of God advances. Servant-heartedness and suffering are how the kingdom of God advances. The kingdom of God is another world in this world. When Jesus returns, it will be all there is. For now, it's another world in this world. The kingdom of God advances through servant-heartedness and the experience of suffering because, I guess, gospel advance is always opposed. Why is that? Because we live in a sinful world that is antagonistic towards the Lord Jesus and the advance of his gospel. And the church, when it is on the vanguard of advance, feels that heat directed against him and his gospel. Another practical reason that servant-heartedness is the way that the kingdom of God advances is that servant-heartedness is the number one ingredient, the number one fuel that makes a church family united. Serving one another is the blood that builds unity in a church. And when a church is united, it is proactive in evangelism. So the gospel project will flounder in our church if we're disunited. Because when you're disunited, you look in, not out, to sort out your problems and struggles. And the last reason I think that I would want to suggest that servant-heartedness advances the kingdom of God is just to say that servant-heartedness or a genuine Christian community that is chock-full of servant-hearted people and a Christian community that's willing to suffer on the road of discipleship, whatever that means, we'll define suffering later, is a very powerful and attractive thing. When you see somebody who is a true servant heart, when you see somebody who is able to endure, press on, and make progress in spite of opposition, it's very powerful very attractive. It commends Jesus to people. So, the kingdom of God advances through servant-hearted discipleship for these reasons and others. Now, enough of waggling on the T. You'll see in the service sheet uh, four headings. Um, God really does have a sense of humor. I claimed definitively two Sundays ago that sermons are always multiples of three. 
Since then, we've had a four, a five, a two, and another four. So we're back on track next week with three. Do pray for me that I'll find three points next week. Four points, you'll see them there. And Mark, in his gospel, wants us to run logically through this big section. That's how he works. Okay, firstly, Jesus is our example of servant-heartedness. Chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. And it's logical that before Mark says anything to us about our life of discipleship, first, he says something about the Lord Jesus' life. He is our example, verse 31. He, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and so on, and after three days rise again. Three times in this big section of Mark 8, 31 to 10, 52, Jesus is the example. There's a key text in Mark's gospel a little later, 10, 52, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is not saying to us, do other than I have done. He is saying, my life is to be characterized on this earth by servant-heartedness and a readiness to suffer for the sake of others. Now, when we speak about Jesus being our example, in this case of servant-heartedness, it is important we understand exactly what that means. Uh, I have golf in my mind. I think I'm thinking of our summer holiday when I hope that my wife will allow me to take my golf clubs. And when I stand on the golf tee in the summer, somebody often comes into my mind. His name is Justin Rose. You may know him. He's a golfer. He has a perfect swing. He has the smoothest, most languid, the most effortless action of any golfer. And he always manages to connect with the center of the ball. He is my example when I stand on the tee. But try as I might, however clearly I have his example in my mind, my swing will never be as languid and smooth, and I will never hit, or at least not often hit, the ball in the center as he does. But when you and I think of Jesus Christ as our example, it is very different. He is not an example that is elusive or out there or in our minds or in a textbook. He lives within us by His Holy Spirit. And therefore, to speak of his example is to speak of that which is within us by the Holy Spirit and possible for us. I will never hit the ball like Justin Rose, but I am capable of hitting the mark of servant-heartedness like Jesus. I am capable, you are capable as Christians of a degree of servant-heartedness that is way further than anything that naturally in our sinful human bodies we might attain. And something else you and I are capable of because the Spirit of Christ lives in us in a real way, in a supernatural way. God is in us. That You and I are capable of endurance and perseverance on the road that is often marked by struggling and suffering. So Jesus is a great example for us and in us. Now, if you read verses 32 and 33, 
the disciples, Peter, the others don't get it yet. Jesus' words to Peter are the sharpest of sharp. Peter, you have in your mind the things of Satan. You've no idea. We'll come back to Peter a little bit later. 34 to 38, point two, following Jesus means serving, suffering, and not being ashamed of him, but it's worth it a thousand times over. Uh, I am preaching on some of these passages in a conference in the summer, and I asked for feedback from people last week. Thank you for those who've given me. Much appreciated. One of the, the, the feedbacks from somebody is that um, if you have titles as long as that, no one will have a clue what you're talking about. That was quite direct, wasn't it? But here we are again with a nice lot. This is what it says, though. Okay? I could have a nice pithy short one-word title. But no, no. This is what it says. Following Jesus means serving, suffering, not being ashamed of him, but it's worth it. Really is worth it. Okay? That's what it says. Verse 38. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, that just makes it crystal clear, doesn't it, that servant-hearted discipleship is not a brand or a flavor of Christianity. It is what it means to be a follower. If anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself. In other words, the call to the life of following or discipleship is a life not of self-serving, but of serving others. And taking up one's cross. Now, practically, what does this look like in the life of a church family like our one? Well, it means, I guess, looking to the interests of others, not one's own. And uh, practically, it means an attitude of mind. It's about thinking about what would help or encourage or strengthen or deepen the faith of somebody else. It's that attitude of mind that expresses these things practically. There's no point of thinking about what would help, encourage, or strengthen, or deepen the face of somebody else, and then not sharing that with them (laughs) practically. The practical expressions of servant-heartedness makes a church a real caring Christian community. Putting oneself out for others just very practically and in small ways. And as a pastor in a church, it's the, the small things that go on all over people's lives in a church that really matter. It's great when I go and visit somebody who's really not well or struggling in whatever way, and I discover that a whole lot of people have already been. Just instincts to drop stuff and go and help people. I guess servant-heartedness in the life of a community means also that its members pursue in life not what necessarily drives them, although God doesn't want us not to enjoy things, but ultimately we pursue in life what advances the kingdom of God and the gospel. 
and which includes serving others. Servant-heartedness and suffering. What does it mean for us to suffer? What does it mean in real life? Well, it doesn't mean what Christians in other parts of the world suffer. Yesterday, in our Vision Day, one of the things we said we wanted to do next year in relation to our global gospel partners is not simply pray for them, not simply pray for the Batlock family or for Jen and others around the world in Africa, China, these different places, but to get through them and through what they can say to us into what is going on for the church in the countries they are in. So we can bear with them their pain and their struggles, and in particular for the suffering church. Suffering for us here, well, it means the regular knockbacks in evangelism, sometimes the, the clear rejection of the gospel we experience personally, corporately, that sense you have of feeling like a stranger in the world, being out of step with everybody else. I feel that every time I go on the train. I go regularly and train to London. I get my Bible out and stick it on the seat. And I try to make it prominent. And I always feel a little nervous doing that. Often, gospel conversations ensue. But I quite like to get out something else so that I can be that kind of culturally British person and just get my head down in the anonymity that we love on public transport. But you kind of get it out your Bible and you feel a little bit like an alien. You just do. It's not easy. It's not easy for young people. It's not easy for children, teenagers in school. It really isn't today easy for them. And uh, suffering for us, I guess personally or as a church, comes when you stand up for Jesus and are not ashamed of him. It would be so much easier to keep one's head down. And uh, we often do and say nothing and do nothing. That's, uh, I think, what Jesus is getting at in verse 38. He says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Suffering means not being ashamed of him. When we're not ashamed of him, well, we feel the flack often of that. So, following Jesus means serving, suffering, and not being ashamed of him. Yes, we get that, but it's hard, and it is. But it's worth it, Jesus says, 10,000 times, 10,000 times over. That's what he says in verses 35 to 37. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul. These are really strong words from the Lord Jesus. Don't forfeit your soul. An everlasting life for a self-serving, easier life now. For where will it get you in the end, Jesus says. So, Jesus is our example of servant-heartedness. Following him means being like him, logically, serving, 
suffering and not being ashamed of him, but it's worth it a thousand times over. Peter, poor Peter at this point, would not be feeling like that. Jesus had used very sharp words to him. He would be reeling. And I suspect when Jesus called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, they would have all rushed forward, and Peter would have kind of slinked back into the background. He had told the Lord Jesus, Jesus, you are wrong about servant-heartedness and suffering for your life. Jesus, you're wrong. And Jesus had been sharp with him. And then to make matters worse, Jesus had told them, it's not just me that is called to a servant-hearted life, to a cross, to suffering. Anyone who wants to follow me must deny himself and take up his cross. Peter must have been really down. Um, and he had much to learn. And so did James and John, these two brothers. A little bit later on in Mark 10, you might know uh, what happens. They kind of sidle up to Jesus. Imagine James or John putting their arm around Jesus and saying, Jesus, when you are in your Father's glory on your big throne, can I sit on that one and my brother on this one? It's an astonishingly arrogant thing to ask, but all they did was ask what is in every human heart. Can I sit on that little throne next to your throne in the special seats? Peter, James, and John would be wonderful, servant-hearted disciples who were willing to suffer for the sake of the kingdom of God, but not yet were they ready. They'd heard some tough stuff. You've got to be willing, Peter, James, and John, to be servant-hearted, to serve others, and to suffer. And what they needed now was a great big dose of encouragement and perspective. And so Jesus said to them a few days later, come on then, Peter and James and John, let's take a walk up this hill just by ourselves. And that's a contemporary translation of chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. But it just happened in a real way with real people. Jesus wanted to give them a perspective that would help them listen to him. And up that mountain, verse 2, Jesus was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, such that no one on earth could bleach them. And what Peter and James and John get to see, they saw physically themselves that day on the mountain. And what we get to see as we read God's Word and Peter's testimony, Peter, Mark is Peter's kind of scribe and companion. What they saw and what we get to see is what Jesus will be like when he returns at the end of time as the King of Glory. They get to see beyond the cross to the returning King of Glory in all his splendor and his majesty and his power and his authority. They get to see beyond the serving and the suffering that would characterize Jesus' life to glory. What a wonderful sight. What a frightening sight. 
They were terrified. No wonder. And yet, what an encouragement. At least they would come to see it later on. Peter wrote about this in his letter. What an encouragement that the path of servant-heartedness and suffering Jesus walked led to his glory. What an encouragement that the path of servant-heartedness and suffering Jesus walked and the cross that he bore would lead. We look back and we sit here as the living, visible evidence of that many millions of others to glory. What an encouragement that the path of servant-heartedness and suffering that all who follow him are called to walk will lead them in the end to glory. And what an encouragement that the path of servant-heartedness and suffering that all who follow him are called to walk will lead many others to Jesus and thus to glory. It is, therefore, a path well worth walking. Now, there is a load of detail in this little account that we don't have time to look at, but the key to understanding the purpose of the transfiguration in Mark's narrative is the voice of God. It's always helpful in a Bible passage when God breaks in in a cloud. And when you say, what is all this about? He tells you. Verse 7, here's the key to unlock this. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud. God, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So, this is my son. Look at him. Peter, James, John, all of you and me. Look at him. Jesus is how he will be when he returns at the end of time. In all his glory. Look at him. You'll be with him and you will see him face to face like that. And your face will reflect his glory. Look at him. And listen to what he is saying to you now. And what is he saying to you now? He is saying, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What else is he saying that we should listen to? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words now, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. See what he's saying? As we look forward to the day when the Lord Jesus returns in all his glory, and we with faces and bodies that are glorified will see him face to face and live forever in a glorious kingdom of God, listen to what he says about the road that will lead you to glory and the road that will lead many millions of others to glory, serving and suffering 
to advance my kingdom. And I, Jesus says, am not asking you to walk on a road that I did not walk myself. Now, I hope and pray that uh, Peter and James and John were encouraged, but they still didn't understand. It's why Jesus, in these uh, passages in Mark's gospel, tells the disciples not to tell anyone at all about anything, which isn't exactly a great encouragement to evangelism. It's because they didn't understand. And they walk back down the mountain. They don't know what's going on. But anyway, and this takes us to our final point, they come back down the mountain, and they come back down into the real world. Somebody, um, I'll not look in their direction, when I said they come back down into the real world, there's a doctor here just smiled. It's the real world. If you're into fine art, Raphael has wonderful pictures of the transfiguration. And then he has one of this valley scene. What's the real world? Disorder. Confusion. Arguing. Sick people. Evil. Supernatural. And a dad is very real and normal and emotive, who's at the end of himself because his son, who's probably now in his teens, has been possessed by this demon all of his life. Jesus appears, and there's a, the cloud kind of swarm to Jesus to try and get help. There's an emotiveness in the human heart to meet their felt needs and deep needs. In the center of it all, the sick boy and his despairing dad. And uh, on the sidelines, the other disciples who want to help but can't. And in powerful contrast to the disciples' lack of authority and power, Jesus demonstrates his supreme authority, power, and compassion by responding to the Father's weak yet genuine faith and delivers this child from his demon possession. Earlier this week, I was teaching at a, what was called a boot camp for young people uh, who have been suggested by their churches to learn about ministry and leadership and discipleship for the future. They would get up at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning and go running, um, led, I understand, by Andrew Robertson, who works here. So if Andrew ever tells you he can't get up in the morning ever again, he can. And my job was to go and teach them with other ministers about what it's really like to be a disciple as the Bible cuts it. So they know when they are 18 or 19 just what it'll be like. Why tell them anything different? Why tell those of them who aspire, maybe one day, who are gifted to be Christian leaders, that it won't be like this? And one of the things I did was told them about what the world is really like behind every door and behind every city and in every village and town. It's like this. It just is. All sorts of struggles and hurts and battles. Deep down, because 
of the root problem of sin in our world. And so Mark is not painting here a picture of another world, a world that is different from ours. What I could have done with these youngsters is pretended that the Christian world or the kingdom of God is like now what they saw up that mountain. But that would have been wrong and untrue. That'll come for all eternity. But the world in which they will live and serve as the next generation of Christians and Christian leaders is the world in the valley, the real world. And uh, very often in that real world, God's people, disciples, ministers, others, all of us feel utterly helpless at the reality of the bleakness, the struggles, and the battles all around us. Of course we do. At the micro level, in individual people's lives. One of them said to me, as a pastor in a church, do you always know what to do? <laughs> and I said to them, really, it's true. You know what to do or say. And as a church, sometimes we just face struggles and obstacles that just really knock us back. And those of you working in the real world, you're in the kingdom of God and yet you live day to day in the world that is not the kingdom of God. You come up against, in all sorts of ways, the outworkings, the manifestations of sinfulness and the hurt and the despair and the sadness it causes. Now, the lesson for discipleship, for followers of Jesus, that Jesus wants us to understand here, and Mark, as he writes, is tucked away at the end of the section, and yet what an important lesson it is. Let's read verses 28 and 29. Follow with me as I read chapter 9. When Jesus had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? After all, he had given them, as his would-be apostles, specific authority to do it. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And I think for us, the big lesson here for discipleship is that in a world of despair and disorder, true servant-hearted discipleship means depending on God through prayer. You know, James and John later on in Mark wanted to have seats on either side of the throne. The right place to be as a true servant-hearted disciple is before the throne on your knees, not sitting beside him, but on your knees praying to him. We cannot do anything in our own strength. So whether it's just a one-on-one -on -one thing with somebody in the church family as you seek to serve them and care for them, and you do not know what to say or do, do not let that prevent you ringing their doorbell, phoning them up, sending them a text, helping them practically. Pray that God will help you know what to do. And on a bigger picture, corporately as a church, as we engage in a project that will see, God willing, 200 all of us equipped to read and understand and have confidence in Mark's gospel. 
We cannot do that in our own strength. Dare we even try? Heaven help us if we try to do it in our own strength, but if we depend on God in prayer, heaven will help us to do it in God's strength. The hallmark of a true Christian and of a true Christian church is servant-heartedness. The hallmark of that hallmark is a praying heart individually and corporately. Our humility and inability before His power and ability. And so the kingdom of God, genuine Christian progress, only happens through servant-heartedness, the experience of suffering. It can only and will happen only in that way because the world in which we witness is a sinful and a fallen and a broken world. Jesus is our example. He is not like Justin Rose in any way. He is not unattainable. He is not in another world. He lives in you. And what he asks you to do, he has done. And what he asks you to do, the Spirit of Christ that dwells in you, gives you and I the capacity to do. It's always a dogfight. We're always going to be struggling with sin. But we are capable of Christ-like servant-heartedness and endurance and perseverance. And so following Him, which we have the capacity to do within us, means serving, suffering, and not being ashamed, but it's worth it 10,000 times 10,000 over. Why is it worth it 10,000 times 10,000 over? A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Tarek's conversion and baptism. I would give my eye teeth just to see that happen occasionally. It's wonderful when it does. To see people converted for all eternity, well, all the kickbacks and rejections and the no's and the people who drift away Well, it's worth it a thousand times, ten thousand times over. As we look forward to meeting Jesus face to face when he returns in glory, listen to what he says about life now. If you want to follow me, the call is to deny self and to suffer. And in the world of despair and disorder, the real world, And it's often really about just individual people. Servant-hearted discipleship means that we do not ask Jesus if we can sit on either side of his throne, but we kneel humbly before his throne and say to God, in our humility and inability, in your power and through your ability, Will you advance through me and through our church your kingdom? Sometimes I think as Christians, we, 
we get glimpses from time to time of what we are truly capable of because Christ lives within us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would see and understand what we are capable of, true servant-heartedness and perseverance and a willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. May we see Jesus as an example that is attainable within us by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that dwells within us. And be humble and servant-hearted, not least as we care and love one another and as we hold out the word of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.